Hey folks, this is Gabby Naranja from Faster Skier, and you're listening to Nordic Nation. In this episode, recorded on the ground in Pyeongchang, South Korea, Jason and I catch up with perhaps the busiest person at the Olympics, Tom Kelly, also known as TK. Kelly is the longtime vice president of communications of U.S. Ski and Snowboard. We interact with Tom as we cover the Nordic sport athletes here at the Games. Tom has been with U.S. Ski and Snowboard or at least the various forms of U.S. Ski and Snowboard, since 1986, and he'll be stepping down from his post a few months after the games conclude. This is a two-part interview. Part one explores the early years of Tom's career. Part two, his more contemporary experiences. Ready? We'll start with Tom discussing tea. We are in Korea, after all. And Tom making the unfact-checked claim of, (laughs) get this, Having never had a sip of coffee. Uh, let me move this a little. I'm, I'm recording, which is good. We're getting like some authentic. Yeah. Testing one, Yeah, so. Oh, we're getting a background. Yeah, just you a little like what's happening. So, so you're a tea guy. I'm a tea guy. One, two, three. Yeah. Testing one, two, yeah, three. So oh, we, we're getting a background. Yeah, just okay. Just what's nice. Happening. Love it. So, okay. So you're a tea guy. I'm a tea guy, um, and I, actually, the origin of that is I'm not a coffee guy. I have never had a cup of coffee in my life. I had a bad coffee experience as a youth. Uh, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and one of the things I did as a like a 13 year old is I sold Coca Cola at the in the stands at University of Wisconsin football games. And there was one day they put me on coffee, and I'm you know hauling around this tray of 24 coffees, and it's all spilling all over me, and I smelled like coffee for a week, and I just didn't like it. And as a result of that, I've never had a cup of coffee. I make coffee, but I drink tea, and I drink a lot of tea. And <clears throat> like when I travel right now, I've got two or three little tea things that I can uh, uh, make tea with. So I have one that I keep in our office at the main press center, and I have another one I keep here at the apartment. And so I've got tea at my disposal pretty much wherever I am. I'm just still... No coffee? Yeah, no coffee. Wow. Yeah, no, I do caffeine. There's no question on <laughs> that, but I just don't do it in a coffee form. All right. It's odd, maybe, but... No, no. That's me. Okay, so and who are you? So, like, talk a little bit about... Um, you're kind of behind the scenes with the U.S. ski team. Introduce yourself, if you could. How old you are, introduce yourself, and what brings you to Pyeongchang? My name is Tom Kelly. I am 65, soon to turn 66, social security time, uh, and born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm a Badger at heart and a Green Bay Packer fan. And I think one of the formative things on that is that I grew up in Wisconsin during the Vince Lombardi era. So I'm accustomed to sports, to motivated teams with dynamic leadership with people like Vince Lombardi. And that's kind of, for me, what sport is about. Sport is about winning. It's about perfection. And it's, and it's about characteristics that are, that are not just valid on the field of play, but that go further than that. And to me, Vince Lombardi really instilled uh, that in his athletes. And that's kind of been my role model as I've made my way through sport. But I, I got connected to the sport of skiing when I was seven years old in 1960. And growing up in Madison, I'd never seen skiing. I didn't know what it was. But one February day, I was home from school with measles or mumps or something. And mom put the Olympics on television from Squaw Valley. So I saw skiing for the first time. And I remember this woman from New Hampshire, Penny Patu, coming down the hill and winning the silver medal in the women's downhill event. And I just was captivated by that. And I didn't know how to participate. And over time, 
you know, over the years, I also became interested in photography. And I used to convince mom and dad to take me out to the ski jump in Madison out of the Blackhawk Ski Club. And it was an interesting facility because they put plastic on the hill. It was the first hill in North America to have plastic. This would have been in the mid to late 60s. So the U.S. ski team trained there. So while I was in high school, I essentially became the photographer for the U.S. ski jumping team. And that was my first connection to organized competitive skiing. I parlayed that again when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. I worked for a PR agency, Joan Collins Publicity, and I wrote news releases. And one Any of her relation cl- to like the singer? No, no, it wasn't. Uh, that's a really good question, though. My parents were Joan Collins fans. So. Yeah. Okay. This was a different one. She's still around in Madison. But one of her clients was Telemark. And I wrote news releases about Telemark. And that was right when Tony Wise was getting into cross country. So I wrote early news releases on the Berkebiner. And from there, I got to go up to Telemark, meet Tony Wise. And, you know, there's a lot more history we can talk about. So we're in South Korea. Well, first off, wait, take a sip of the tea. I'm going to take a sip too. Everyone take a sip. So Gabby is here. Guest appearance. Yes. Hello. (laughs) Gabby works at Faster Skin. Okay. So let me take a little So how would you, okay, just a little digression. As I'm sipping tea, right? I'm not a tea aficionado. What am I looking for? You know, is there like a no, you know what I mean? Like, well, there is, and and, and I I don't get technically into it probably as much as I would wine or beer, but I, I like to drink green teas generally. My staple tea is a green tea. It's pretty commonly available anywhere. I really enjoy it, but I like to get out there a little bit as well. And my, uh, one of my good friends uh, has a tea shop in Salt Lake City, Tizanti, uh, which is on the east side of Salt Lake City. And he has about 50 or 60 varieties of tea. So I'll go in there and I'll just say, hey, Scott, just uh, take me somewhere really different. And just before this trip to Pyeongchang, I was in there and I said, I want something really unusual. And he knew that I also like oolongs and I like teas that have really exotic flavors. So he said, try this. It tastes just like butter. And it really does. You know, you put your nose in the bag. It's just like butter. And you taste this tea and it's it's just wonderful. So when I come home here to my apartment in Pyeongchang at the Young Pyong Villa Condos at about midnight or 1230 in the morning each night during the Olympics, I like to sit down and have a glass of tea and watch some American TV and uh, uh, finish up my work. Okay. It's like a popcorn. Yeah, it's like comfort. It's just it's like popcorn. Up. Yeah, it's just <laughs> like popcorn. Okay, so so um, let me turn down my... Okay, so you are here as, you know, you tell me what your, your title is with U.S. Ski and Snowboard, formerly known as USSA, short, but... Yes. And, and please, everyone, formerly known as USSA, we're trying to eradicate that and get people to use U.S. Ski and Snowboard, which is fascinating. Uh, my formal title at U.S. Ski and Snowboard is Vice President Communications, and that's essentially the role that I've had since 1988. For two years prior to that, I was the Assistant National Nordic Director working under Lee Todd in Colorado Springs, and my job there was to essentially be the administrator for cross-country ski jumping and Nordic combined uh, 
grassroots program. So I was in charge of officials' educations, coaches' education, uh, calendaring of events, membership, and so forth. And that was really fun, but I, I wanted to get back into the PR world. So when we moved to Park City with the organization in 1988, I asked to get back into the PR side. And I started the role in 1988, and it's essentially the same role that I'm doing now. The role here in Pyeongchang that I serve is I'm essentially the chief press officer for U.S. Ski and Snowboard. So I report to the U.S. Olympic Committee, and I'm responsible for all of our sports, which includes alpine, cross-country, free skiing, freestyle, Nordic combined, ski jumping, and snowboarding. So a typical day for me could be going to literally three to five different venues. Okay, so let's let's go rewind history a little bit. So you got you moved to Park City, and I'm curious, you know, to kind of ground people who maybe follow either Nordic sport or follow Alpine. Who were some of those athletes that you were working with at that time? Just kind of ground us chronologically. Well, I wonder if we should maybe even go back further than that. And and I, I think to really set the stage for me in getting involved in what I'll call what, what we have with cross country skiing today, it dates back to uh, uh, November of 1975, and I had made my first trip up to Telemark, and it was to. Uh, help do PR for a training camp the U.S. cross-country ski team had. And I love to tell stories, so I'll, I'll throw a few of them in here. But Tony Wise knew about Marty Hall. And Marty Hall was the coach of the U.S. cross-country ski team back in 1975. Marty, I should add, is about to be inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame this April in Squaw Valley. So Tony knew that Marty was the coach, and Tony had been bugging Marty to come on up there and, and bring the team up to train. And Marty was just thought he was maybe some kind of a crackpot. But Marty was doing a clinic in Minneapolis in October of 1975. Tony learned about this and got a hold of Marty by telephone at the hotel in Minneapolis and said in his inimitable way, you got to come up to Telemark. You got to come on up here and see our trails. And Marty said, ah, I don't really have time for that. I'm doing the clinic. And Tony says, well, I'm going to send an airplane for you. And he did. He sent an airplane down from Hayward to pick up Marty Hall. And Marty said, why not? And Marty came up and looked at the trails and he said, Tony, this is amazing. And he didn't have the ability to do a camp. The, the team was going to do its preseason camp at Cook City, um, Montana, which is where it trained a lot back then. And amazing, isn't it? No one, yeah, and no one ever thinks about that. But Cook City was kind of the West Yellowstone before there was West Yellowstone. So there wasn't enough snow in Cook City. And folks don't know where Cook City is. It's tucked into the northeastern corner of Yellowstone National Park. It's really remote, but it's one of the few areas of Yellowstone you can actually drive into in the wintertime. Oh, yeah, right uh, by the uh, foot of the Beartooth. Uh, amazing area. But they had no snow. So, again, Tony called up Marty Hall and said, oh, we got a lot of snow. Come on up here. This is like Thanksgiving week. And so Marty came up there. There wasn't that much snow, but there was more than they had in Cook City. But the beauty was they stayed in the Telemark Lodge, and they literally would walk 60 seconds out their doors in this wonderful hotel and they were on the cross-country tracks, and they were world-class. They were good trails. Uh, they'd been designed uh, originally by Sven Wick from Sweden, who lived in Steamboat Springs, and he was the original designer of those trails. Marty would later get into the act, as would John Bauer, who was the Nordic director at the time. So 
you know, he's seen those trails and, and he decided to bring the camp up there. And so Bill Koch and company, and it was a great team. I mean, it was uh, uh, the, the early days of what was a great era with uh, Bill Koch and Tim Caldwell and Stan Dunkley and Doug Peterson and uh, uh, Margie Mahoney and uh, just a, a ton of really great athletes from that period. They came for this camp. And that was great. And then they went off. And the Olympic trials were scheduled for Lake Placid over the Christmas break. And there was no snow in Lake Placid. So once again, Tony says, come on up to my place. So with literally two weeks notice, Tony staged the Olympic trials over the New Year's break, 1975-76. And those were the Olympic trials that sent Bill Koch on to Innsbruck to win the silver medal in the 30K. And, and that was something that... Uh, you know, I think Tony always took a lot of pride in. And then from there, it, it just, it, it, we did amazing things there. We worked with a group of journalists from Europe, uh, a, a Norwegian, a German, and a Pole. And they had an informal World Cup. And it wasn't sanctioned by FIS, but we helped them engineer a partnership with FIS. And then we staged the very first World Cup that Allison Owen Spencer won. It's a little known fact. And this resurfaced again when Keegan won in Rabinsk in 2005, and there was a lot of talk that she was the first American woman to win a World Cup. Well, it isn't exactly correct. Allison Owen Spencer uh, won that World Cup at Telemark, uh, and, and it's a nice little piece of history that's not really recorded. If you go into Fiske.com database, it's not in there, and uh, it's something that if anyone listening to this podcast has a copy of those results, I'd love to get those to Fisk so we could get it recorded. I think I've been corrected, like referencing maybe a first win, and I forget who it is. Somebody who Rob probably sent me a really complimentary email about <laughs> screwing that up. Someone from Sun Valley. Someone, I don't think it was from Sun Valley. I someone from, from uh, actually, she was actually from um, uh, Wenatchee. This, oh, really? Oh, I think it was from, I, I actually know who it is, but someone maybe who lives in Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah. Not you, Gavin. <laughs> um, so did you tap in? I mean, so how did you segue that into um, sort of a gig with the USOC? Well, so I so I, I had when we were at the center of the cross country universe at Telemark and I worked there from 1977. Oh, actually, I, I took a full time job there. I had been a newspaper reporter and photographer in Madison, Wisconsin. And our newspaper went out on strike in October of 1977. So I used that as an opportunity to leave Madison, go and work full-time for Telemark. And I stayed there uh, and worked through some really cool things. Uh, probably the most enjoyable was the work that we did in starting the World Lopet. I mean, we literally started the World Lopet. We conceived the idea, or Tony conceived the idea. And then we went out and talked these nations into participating in the World Lopet. So I take a lot of pride in seeing that the World Lopet is over 40 years old now and has had how many hundreds of thousands of participants. I mean, that was something that I was involved in the grassroots of. And I went to the very first race in January of 1979 in Lienz, Austria, the Dolomitenlauf. And then out of that, my friend Peter Graves and I formed a company called Worldwide Nordic USA. And Worldwide Nordic was a tour company. And we used to take Americans to these cross-country races all over the world. And one of the coolest trips we did, we pioneered a trip to Murmansk, which was not 
not in the world lopet, but we knew, I knew of this race in Murmansk, and Murmansk is 500 miles above the Arctic Circle in what was then the Soviet Union. So we worked for two years to get permission to go there, and we were essentially the first American tour group ever allowed to go to Murmansk, and it was an amazing deal. And I took, the first year, I think we took about 10 skiers there, and interestingly enough, in that group was Simi's parents. Uh, so uh, Ruth and Skip, uh, uh, who are Simi's mom and dad, uh, they were with me, and this was pre-Simi, and we had an amazing experience up there, just uh, culturally, was just something none of us had ever experienced, and made you feel really good about the power of sport. So I did Worldwide Nordic uh, for a while, but I really wanted to get back into uh, um, kind of a next level of PR and next level of sport. Uh, Telemark had gone through a bankruptcy, so I left Telemark in 1984. I ran Worldwide Nordic for a few years and then ultimately sold it and went to work for U.S. Ski Association in 1977, and or, I'm sorry, in 1986, and then, uh, you know, the rest kind of is history. So, and based in Colorado Based in Colorado Springs, Springs for two years, and then uh, got married to my wife, who was actually my very first employee at Telemark, my wife, Carol Dew, and we've been together now for 40-plus years and uh, uh, have a great uh relationship and partnership and live in Park City and we've really loved loved being out there but moved there in 1988. What was the what was Park City like in 1988? At first we weren't happy to move there. It took about a week to figure it out. Park City wasn't exactly what it is today. We also moved during mud season and for anybody who lives in the mountains you know that's not a really cool time of year. Uh, but we got used to it pretty quickly, and we were there really at the front end of the growth. So we've been able to watch how it's grown and actually really admire how Park City has managed its growth. Yeah, there's shopping malls, there's a Walmart, and a lot of things like that. But we've also, as a community, we've invested an enormous amount of money in open space and really preserved open space. And I really admire that about our community. And we've also kept our heritage intact as a 19th century mining town. And those are the things we love about Park City, and we have no in intent of leaving there. So you'll stick around? Yeah, I, I love Park City. We just built a barn last summer on our property, so uh, we're a little bit more committed to it now, and uh, we'd like to enjoy that for, for a few more years. I think I saw a photo of the barn. Yeah, yeah the barn's really cool. I did a I did a party. In fact, one of my one of my reasons for the barn. People say, "Why'd you build a barn? Do you have horses?" We don't have horses. I'm allergic to horses, but I, I want to do parties. And the first party in the barn was a party for the cross country team. And I, I have always wanted to do this at their fall camp in September, October, is to do a party for the cross country team. And we had a wonderful get together in early October with the entire team, and it was just a great way to send them off to their season. Cool. Do you like music or what's we it, we didn't we didn't do music like? we. We, um, we're going to do music in the barn. We didn't do it for that particular party. Uh, uh, we just kept it kind of a low key and we had about 25 or 30 of us and it's pretty much was everybody. And uh, it was just meaningful for me because I feel closer to this team than any other I work with. I feel, you know, I, I get like here in Pyeongchang, I get my greatest joy from being in the finish line at cross country. It's pretty darn exciting to be at the bottom of the slope style course, you know, and see Nick Yepper and others win. But at the end of the day, my heart is uh, with this cross-country team, and I love going up to the Alpensia Cross-Country Center. Before we, we kind of get into more contemporary type things, I, I'm curious, 
um, we start talking about your role as, you know, you sh what I see here, obviously there's a ton more going behind, you know, behind the scenes, but you are sort of a liaison between the press and the athlete. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, also like a handler, making sure the athlete is like basic needs are met when they have to sort of, the competition is over and they have to start dealing with, you know, they're being bombarded with questions. Mm -hmm. um, when, what was that like initially when you took the job and how has that evolved? Well, it's actually a really fascinating question. And I think it's evolved not so much just because of our team, but I think the world of communications has, has evolved quite a bit. Um, you know, as, as we start to win, um, the athletes are more on center stage. So one of, one of my roles is to work together with the athletes to ensure that they can tell their story the way they want to tell their story. And I think if you're genuine and you're a good person, that's going to come across to the media. Um, but you know, one of the challenges, particularly at the Olympics is there are many, because of the, the, the height of the stage, the, the fact that there is no bigger sporting event in the world. There is no other gathering of media that is as large as the Olympics. Every little issue or topic tends to get amplified. And if you're an athlete and you have particular views on some issue or topic that's meaningful to you, uh, if you choose to take that platform during the Olympics, it's going to end up being what you talk about as opposed to your sport. And when we talk to the athletes before the games, we remind them of this, that we're not going to ever tell you what to say. That's completely up to you. Your, your views and your voice is, is you. It's not us, and we're not going to seek to change that. But just know that if you decide to use this as a platform, it's going to stick with you, and it's going to be the question that everyone's going to ask you as you go through the game. So you know, if, if your view on the environment or if your view on politics is important to you, you know, espouse that. But just know that probably that's going to be the question you'll get as opposed to how was your 15K today? And, and you know, we just want to remind them of that. And they, they take that in different ways. But uh, I think it's important to, to remind them so that, you know, when they make their way around to the media in the mixed zone after the race, that they can talk about the race and they can talk about their athletic performance. Did you have a learning experience as someone, as a, as a you know, works in PR with the, with the team where you kind of heard maybe a comment, you put your forehead into your hand, kind of shook your head and you're like, okay, how am I going to navigate this? I mean, I'm assuming, um, you know, media is much different now. I'm trying to think my first Olympics that I remember watching was like say Innsbruck. So I forget, is that 76? 76. So, you know, I guess I was eight, uh, you know, watch, I forget his name, but Wild World of Sports, remember the... Franz Klammer. Well, Franz Klammer, I totally remember that. Mm -hmm. um, but whoever the ABC Sports announcer is that kind of covered the Olympics then. Bob Yaddy and Frank Gifford. Yeah, okay. So those guys, but it's much different. You know, now it's like real time. People have cameras with on their phones and all that. But how did you... Uh, do you remember an experience where you were young and thought, okay, this is going to be a little dicey situation where someone is espousing a political view or a personal view on something and I have to kind of massage the scene? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> Jim McKay, by the way, is the other one yeah, you're Jim thinking McKay, of. Yeah, Jim McKay, that's who I'm thinking of. So, yeah. 
you know, I came into the PR world from having been a journalist. And that kind of puts me into a much different place than some people who've maybe come in and just been trained in in communications and public relations. That's not what I started. I started as a journalist. So when I first came into my PR job, I treated it like I would as a journalist. And I think that helped me in many ways. But it also didn't help me in understanding management of issues. And that's something that took me a long time to learn. At the same time, the guy who was at my side through most of that time period was Paul Robbins. And I think many of your listeners will remember Paul. Paul was an amazing individual who just somehow by sheer coincidence got thrust into the cross-country world You know, back in uh, 1977 or 78 when, again, my boss, Tony Wise, read a news release Paul had written and thought it was really good and invited Paul to come up and report on cross country. And that began a uh, many decade love affair that Paul Robbins had with cross country. But he was a journalist too. So in my early days in this, uh, I reported and did my PR kind of as a journalist. And as such, that probably, I think in looking back, led us into situations where maybe we were being more journalistic than strategic communications oriented. But over time, with the increase in media and particularly the proliferation of social media in the last decade, management of public image and management of uh, communications is, is absolutely vital. And I'll give you, a, I'll give you one example. Uh, this was in 2006 at the Olympics in Torino. Jarrett Speedy Peterson had won a silver medal in aerials, and it was a really big deal. And for those who may remember Speedy, who passed away a few years ago uh, as a result of suicide, uh, Speedy, uh, after he won his silver medal a night, a night or so later, he spent a night partying, and he ended up getting into a fight with someone. And that was one thing, except he got in this fight in front of a media bus in the dawn hours in this little village in Italy. So everybody saw this fight and they saw the silver medalist fighting this guy and he was arrested and, and you know, we talked to him and, you know, I got to him and said, now, now Speedy, uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to get you out of the country here. <laughs> we're going to move this along. I just want to make sure you don't talk to any media. You know, do you have your cell phone still? And he said, oh, I haven't. I just, I just talked to this one TV guy, just one TV guy in, in Boise. And I, he's, you know, he's a small TV station. I said, well, Speedy, there's the internet now, you know. And sure enough, within an hour, that little TV station's uh, little news story had been picked up uh, by search engines, and everybody knew this story. Uh, and I use that story a lot um, uh, to just remind people that, you know, you, you just, you really have to think, and you have to think twice, you have to think twice about what you post, and particularly athletes, uh, just got to really think it through. My job is not to regulate them, it's just to remind them of the possible outcomes. So I would never say to somebody, take that post down, I would say to someone, here's the impact of that post, you know, and you think about what's the best way to handle it, and use it as an educational opportunity, uh, because I think in most cases, the athletes will do this unwittingly. And, and so, so it's those kind of things that have really changed the nature of the job that I do. So, you know, what I did 20, 30 years ago is, was much different than what I do today. Thanks for listening to part one of the Tom Kelly interview. We hope to have part two up soon.